Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So now we begin podcast number 27 in our series on world history. In podcast 26, we reviewed the rise of the primitive idea of the first universities in the world and some of the areas of focus or concentration that they would be known for. Then we also moved on to the rise of the great Gothic cathedrals. We looked at some of the defining characteristics of those massive buildings. And then we brought that outline or podcast to a close. So in podcast number 27, we're going to bring far more than just the discussion on the great cathedrals to a close. We are going to begin this podcast with the first overtures or signs of the massive end of the Middle Ages. Unlike what is mythically believed as a slam dunk moment when, quote unquote, the Roman Empire ended, as we talked about, it did not. It, the theories abound whether it faded or moved or is still with us today under a different name. That is very different than the, what we're going to see with the close of the Middle Ages. It largely is going to be not just one bang that's going to bring this age to a close, but three. So let's begin with these of these three cataclysmic events that are going to bring the Middle Ages as we know them to a close. Let's look at some of the defining characteristics which allowed these catastrophes to have the effect that they were going to have on the Western and Eastern European populations. First off, in terms of the prelude to the three disasters, looking back once again from what we have learned to be able to study the health of planet Earth, if you remember, several podcasts ago when we looked at the age or the time period from 1050 to the 1250s, we discussed that the earth was going through a period of warming with longer growing seasons, higher increase in the average temperature, etc. Well, the exact opposite is going to take place now between the years 1300 to 1450 AD. There were periods of unusually long, cold winters followed by summers that at most you could call them cool. As a result, their growing season, of course, shrunk. Their time period in which the land was frozen or at least unusable certainly lengthened. Therefore, it led to a reduction in food production that coupled with a larger population that was a result of the earth warming in the centuries before equaled a less nourished people. With people not being as healthy, therefore they produced less physically. So you have two negative aspects coming together there, which is going to negatively impact the population as a whole. A shorter growing season, but also a population that has less energy to work that land than their immediate ancestors were. 
Ironically enough, what we'd also see for the first time an increase is that crime would rise as a response to this, because in some cases it was easier and less energy to steal food than to try to cultivate it from the ground up. So just keep that in mind that, again, Earth was going through this long, cold uh, spell that was following that longer period when it was warming. Again, something that we now know Earth has been doing for well over a billion and a half years, this increase and decrease in average global temperature. That leads us then to the first cataclysmic event, the one that will last the longest in terms of the number of years, and that is the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War started in 1337 and went to 1453. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, that's not exactly 100 years. Well, leave it to us historians, who are generally not good at counting past 100 anyhow, to simply just round that number down to the nearest hundredth and just simply call it the 100 Years War. Again, though, as we know, even though it lasted 116 years. But it started in 1337, 37 years into this cooling average global temperature. And the war itself, simply put, was a war of succession. Anytime an individual hears war of succession, by succession, all we're meaning here is not that somebody's going to be more or less successful at something, but rather who's going to succeed a royal throne. In this case, it was a war over the succession of the French throne. France wanted to ultimately declare and appoint their own leaders. But when there was an absence on the French throne, Great Britain saw that as an opportunity to extend its influence across the English Channel to have a stronger, to have a stronger foothold on the continent. I'm not getting into names and specific years here because, again, the point being isn't who won what battle at one time. What time? The fact of the matter is, as Earth is cooling and the growing seasons are shorter and the population is becoming less nourished, you now have weapons of war aiming their trajectories over the English Channel for well over a century. As a result, populations in France and England, as a result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time in some cases, was greatly reduced as a result of the war, casualties of war, land being destroyed after a battle was fought on it. Harbors being destroyed after a naval, naval battle commenced and then eventually ended. Because the land and harbors were destroyed, that also ag added, of course, negatively to Europe's ability to attempt to feed itself. What also came of this, and in this case in a negative sense, was the birth and the growth of nationalism. The idea that your country is better than another one. Now, that is an extreme interpretation of nationalism. Nationalism by itself is not only not a bad thing, you need it. Nobody needed nationalism more than those individuals, the rebels that won the American Revolution. Every rebel that survived the war went back to their respective colonies, now states, pounding their chest that they were New Yorkers or they were from Pennsylvania or they were Virginians. No, they needed to come together nationally in order to combine their resources, et cetera, something that they were very, very reluctant to do after the American Revolution came to a close. In this case, the French and the British will be taking nationalism to an extreme.
But the final point that I want to stress here is that people were distraught, not just because of the war itself, but that the Roman Catholic Church didn't seem to be able to do anything to stop it. What's worse is that people witnessed Roman Catholic popes playing politics, either favoring the French or the English, depending upon which pope was in office at the time. Mind you, there's going to be 19 popes in this 116-year period, not to mention its own problems that it will be struggling with, too, as we'll discuss later. But because of this, these popes playing politics, largely what's being perceived at the expense of the commoners, was very, very distressing to the Roman Catholic population, to the European population. And as a result, this would become strike one that was going to eventually be the three strikes that would bring the Middle Ages to a close. Again, just one strike, starting in the year 1337. Remember that number seven too, 1337. Let's fast forward now 10 years, just 10 years. So that war starts in 1337. It's progressing for a decade now when individually people are finding out that something is wrong with a significant portion of the population starting in 1347. And that, of course, was the onset of the Black or the Bubonic Plague. The Bubonic Plague, alleging its name there to the scientific or the medical field, Black Death, the more common historical term, the reason for the color black is because of the colors of the, of the flanges or appendages of the victims at the onset or at late onset of the disease. And then eventually before they killed them, the way that their uh, fingers and their toes would turn this ugly, gross, shiny uh, black color. Please note again, it did start in 1347. We don't have an exact end date. In other words, even though the Black Death in its initial onset will come and go, decimating a significant portion of the population, as we'll discuss in a moment, there will be recurrences of this plague throughout to the mid-1700s when the Europeans will go into their own form of modern-day lockdown is in a way to protect themselves that the plague doesn't get any worse. When is the last time we see evidence of the plague? Students oftentimes are, are literally blown away when they find out, because I'm not just telling them, I'm reading the latest newspaper article of a recent victim who died truly of the effects of the Black Plague. One of them not too long ago in 2016 or 2017, a teenager in Colorado, 16 years old, died of the Black Plague. So when you hear about individuals dying of the Black Plague in modern times in the 21st century, don't think of some third world country that doesn't have any access to medicine. This particular example and the one before it, just a few years before, took place here in the United States because we still technically do not have a cure for the way this plague affects the human body. As one historian argued John Abbott that it was truly, quote, the greatest and most sustained demographic disaster in the history of the world. For those of you listening to this podcast, as our current pandemic is raging, you probably know more than the average individual would have anywhere even in the 20th century about the Black Plague simply because of the way that plague is being brought up as a result in comparison to COVID-19. 
pandemic, right? So again, as I say, right now, in terms of the percentage of the population still to this day, and let's hope we don't break that record, that it was the greatest and most sustained demographic disaster in the history of the world. We still, to this day, second point on this is we still do not know exactly where it came from. Was it from the northern part of the Black Sea? Did it originally come from Southeast Asia? We don't have an exact location partly because of the fact we know it was brought in through the primary sea or naval trade routes. But again, is there a particular country of origin? We don't know. We do know that it was transported via the rat. And as a result of this, the rat for the first time in roughly over uh, 1400 years, the rat will then go down as the least favorable animal or the most hated animal by human society that would now displace the snake as number two for biblical reasons. However, it was not the rat itself that brought the plague on. It was the fleas on the rat that were then that were uh, spreading this particular bacteria. The city sprawl exacerbated the transport of the plague is a third point I want to stress here. Do you recall when we were talking about the rise of the great cities, medieval cities? Well, the reason, as I said, that the lack of any particular kind of uh, zoning or any kind of health codes will be something that will haunt the people that are populating the major towns and cities in, in medieval Europe. This is what I was referring to. Because once this plague hit the first person in a major city, its being able to spread was extremely easy. That lacked with, or that I should say coupled with, our modern day concept or understanding of proper hygiene was out the window back in course in these days as well, with bathing being done not nearly as much as it is in common in modern times, not having any idea how bodily fluids actually transport bacteria and viruses, etc. In terms of the onset of the ailment, the individual would start to feel some, in some cases, some respiratory effects. Other people felt abdominal issues. But eventually, within a matter of a couple of days, these pink, rosy spots would form on the human skin with a red ring that would form around it. In the middle of that red spot would eventually start rising up like large pimples. As a result of that, that's where we get, again, that biblical idea, uh, excuse me, not biblical, but uh, individual idea of what we call the modern day nursery rhyme of ring around the rosy, that ring around that rosy pustule, ring around the rosy's pocket full of posy. Well, that idea, again, the, uh, the flowers that people would hold to their noses when walking through certain parts of cities or towns because of the stench from decomposing bodies. It was also thought that a form of a purple iris or uh, flower comparable to the iris was thought to have medicinal effects to keep the, the plague away from individuals. Again, no basis in science because the science just wasn't there. But ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, ashes to ashes, as bodies are being burned, we all fall down. Having a nursery rhyme type jingle like that is easy for individuals to be able to hear, as well as to even easier to be able to remember. That protected oneself.
So keep this in mind as we're talking about with the onset of the element, that coupled with ignorance and fear, plus the chaos that ensued, led to some very, very cruel primitive conclusions. That being, of course, the idea that it was the Jews' responsibility. They are the ones at fault for putting Jesus Christ to death some literally 13 and a half centuries before. To get, I, again, nothing could have been further from any kind of uh, truth to this, but it just shows you their extent that people will do as they race for answers when there's no knowledge to be gained. They draw their own primitive, harsh, and ignorant conclusions. So it was not surprising, sadly, that the Jewish communities were banished, in some cases persecuted and killed, and others as a result of the plague setting further and further in. One particular area that human society in Western Europe did experiment with, and turns out had some legitimacy to this in terms of the effectiveness of this, is that ports oftentimes would keep ships that were coming in from another country out in the open waters anywhere from four to 14 days. The Italian term for that was to keep those ships in quaranta until they could verify that nobody on the ship was coming down with the, with the illness. As a result of that, if nobody was coming down with the sickness, the ship could then be brought into port where the trading could then begin or the unloading of the ship and reloading with goods going to other destinations. But that term quaranta is where we get the modern term quarantine from. And again, the idea of four. In terms of the effect of the plague, anywhere from a, third, a quarter to a third of the entire population of Europe was wiped out. It was not unheard of for small towns to truly have their entire population either decimated or part of it decimated while others simply fled the city, thinking that there was a negative spell as a result. However, what I want to stress more importantly in terms of the effect of the plague is that the very institution that the Europeans have been turning to for well over a thousand years for answers to common everyday problems was glaringly and deafeningly silent. And that was the Roman Catholic Church. People's lack of confidence in the church greatly increased. Number one, or for two reasons, number one, not only because priests were also coming down with the plague as well. In other words, this plague took no exceptions to who you were. But secondly, there was no answer in the good book. There was no biblical answer for why this was happening or how to cure or, or protect themselves. And that's the reason why that the uh, population's lack of confidence in the Roman Catholic Church would lead to strike two to bring the Middle Ages to a close. And what I mean by that, again, is strike one being the Hundred Years' War that by the time the plague starts has been going on for 10 years. Now you have another catastrophic event that is uh, having a negative impact on population growth. Is there anything that could be any worse? Anything else that could also negatively affect the population with such an impact as the Hundred Years' War is doing and the Black Plague, and that unfortunately is a, is a huge yes. And that's when, just again, 30 years after the plague starts, 40 years after the Hundred Years' War starts, is that the institution 
that the European population by and large trusted the most, the Roman Catholic Church, would turn around and have its own internal problems. And I mean major problems. Starting in 1377 is when, again, it's kind of surprising. I'm stressing these years for a reason because they all are starting. All of these, all three of these catastrophic events are starting on the sevens. It's amazing that seven is considered a lucky number in Western society in modern times. No kidding. But in 1377, the Roman Catholic Church found itself moving back to modern-day Rome. Now you might say, okay, so where was it before that? Well, let's unpack that a little bit here. From 1309 to 1376, the capital of the Roman Catholic Church was moved from modern-day Rome, where its seat was for well over a, of a millennia before, to the southern parts of modern-day France in Avignon. But please note, though, Rome did not, the, the church did not leave Rome and move to France. Avignon back then is technically in Roman Catholic territory. Remember the land that Charlemagne's ancestors had donated to the Roman Catholic Church? Much of that land was still in the church's hands. As a result, they are in their own territory. But the problem with Avignon is that they lived a very, very posh lifestyle one of opulence, extravagance. They truly lived the life of luxury. That coupled with the fact that they were away from Roman Catholic roots at a time when, again, the Hundred Years' War is raging and the Black Plague is also raging, Gregory Eleventh, when he was then installed as the next pope, reinstated Rome as the seat of the Roman Catholic Church. He had no problem going back to the bare-bones lifestyle that his many, many of his prior popes had done and experienced. But that's only one person. It was the cardinals, priests, and staffers that worked in the papal world headquarters that were distraught having to leave their posh lifestyle in southern France. As a result, Gregory Eleventh didn't last long. And he was succeeded by Urban VI, who was a mean and arrogant pope that alienated many. As a result, a lot of high-ranking cardinals took this as an opportunity to return to Avignon and elect their own pope, who would become what's known as an antipope, Clement VII. However, when Urban VI found out what the cardinals had done and elected their own pope, Urban didn't step down and ordered Clement VII to step down, who also refused to do so. So the Roman Catholic Church had two, what they claimed to be, legitimate popes. From here, this would distress the Roman Catholic population significantly, because this started what became known as the Great Papal Schism. To make matters worse, the European powers lined up in support of either Urban or Clement, depending upon which pope was more favorable to what country or what nationality. Peasants were angry and afraid with the lack of unity. Scrambling, although this was decades later, the College of Cardinals met in Pisa in 1409 and immediately disposed 
both popes. And they elected their own pope. The problem was that the pope in Avignon and in Rome refused to step down. So in conclusion of the council in Pisa that started in 1409, if it wasn't bad enough for the peasants to have the problem with two popes, they now had three. This is impossible through a podcast. It's even difficult in the classroom, ladies and gentlemen, to try to stress the way or how important this was to the Roman Catholic population at a time when the European continent was being mired down in war, decimated by the Black Plague, with no answers coming from the Roman Catholic Pope, and now to find out that there's not two but three popes? Who do I follow? Who's the correct pope? Who's the one that has that direct line to God? How do I know, the Roman Catholic peasants asked themselves, that if I'm following Urban VI and I die and I'm going on that up escalator to heaven, or at least I hope I am, only to find St. Peter saying, there you are, you've been a good Catholic all your life, and you've been following Clement Seventh. Oh, no, you were following Urban VI. Sorry, that's the wrong pope. Down escalator for you. I'm stressing this or kind of explain this in a comical way, but it wasn't for the peasant population. Which pope was the actual legitimate one? Nobody knew. Was it Clement? Was it Urban? Or was it this third one? And this would rage on for several more years until the Council of Constance met in 1414. And over a period of four years, ended the schism, forced the uh, other popes to step down, and instituted some reforms within church hierarchy. As a result, again, all three popes would be eliminated and Martin V would be elected, who would reign in good health from 1417 to 1431. Martin dissolved the council, however. No real reform was came from it, and as a result, the seeds were sown for what would later become the second breakout of Roman Catholics to leave the Roman Catholic Church that, as we know, of course, is the Protestant Reformation. Now, if you notice, I did not name that third pope that was elected in Pisa. And the reason being is because he was considered a legitimate pope until 1958. That pope's name was the most popular name drawn by a cardinal who was elected to become the next pope, John. And his name was John the 23rd. And you might say, no, 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 Chris, that can't be because there was a John the 23rd. Wait a minute. In 1958. Exactly. That's when the Roman Catholic Church took a final step to depose these popes by literally removing John the 23rd's name from the list of successive popes throughout Roman Catholic history. So more about this soap opera when we get to European history and then world history in the 20th century. But what we need to know right now, again, is that the urban population, the peasant class, the commoners, the U's and I's of society have had it with all of the soap opera negative politics coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. For them, this would be strike three. Strike one was the war. Strike two was the plague. Strike three was the great papal schism. Mind you, all of these events 
happened within one person's lifetime. Truly, from 1337, the war, 47, the plague, 77 starts the Great Papal Schism. As a result, by the time the church broke out into three, listeners, I ask you, who is left for the sick, scared, frustrated population to turn to? Who will not let the people down? Who is the last and only person that the people can count on to provide them with the answers that they so desperately need to end the war, to cure the sick, to end this plague, and to lead them going forward to what for everybody in the European population is certain to be a dismal, dangerous future in modern-day Europe. Who is left for the people to turn to that they know that they can count on without fail? Yes, most of the time I'd say pause it and then come back, and I'll let you know who that person is, but I'm not going to do that this time. This will be the end of that podcast. Think about this as we bring this podcast to a close. Who is left for the European population to turn to that they know won't fail them? It's the only person that they know that they can trust going forward now. So that's what we'll begin our next podcast on when, believe it or not, we will begin an age that becomes known as, of course, the Renaissance. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review or a comment as well. Have a great day.